When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! How are you, old friend? I, well, I miss you. We're separate this week. I am in the Travel Tavern in Salford once again. Are you guest of the day? No, I'll tell you something. Not only was I not made guest of the day this time, but... Yeah. The, so, so I felt, because I've stayed here quite a bit doing work for the BBC over the past six months or so, I felt that I've got quite a good rapport with the staff. Membership and I, has its privileges. Yeah, and also, let me tell you something. I, I think I am a very nice customer. I'm very needy, which makes me very polite. So I haven't I th- noticed that, actually. <laughs> so, so I think, like the people who work at the hotel, in my mind, they're all thinking, oh, it's that nice Mr Lloyd. Oh, I wonder when Mr Lloyd's coming back. He's so nice. Some of our customers are quite rude, or some of them are just quite neutral. But Mr Not- Lloyd is so nice. Anyway, I went to check in. And the guy looked at me and he said, uh, have you stayed with us before? No memory of me whatsoever at all. I'm that forgettable. That's that's terrible. Now, look, I, I just want to make I, I need to make an intervention um, in this introduction because we've had an email from John Tierney. And it says this. Hello, Ed, Jeff and the team. Thank you for the reason to be cheerful podcast from an enthusiastic Irish follower living in France. And basically, he says that he really likes our podcast. Da, 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 da. But I knew there was there a, is book a book coming. I'm convinced that Reason to be Cheerful can make a greater contribution to this global shift, the global shift that he says is required to take on the big challenges. Uh, But, he says, you need to tailor the show more to an international audience. The five-minute intro of In Chuckles over the that's you, In Chuckles, uh, over the most recent inanities of British politics goes straight over the heads of non-Brits. And a lot of the UK-oriented badinage between Ed and Jeff does not register. I have strongly recommended reasons to be cheerful to family and friends in the US and Australia, and they will not listen through the inside nudge nudge intro. The comments about nudge nudge that makes us sound like carry on. Nudge nudge wink wink say no more. Uh, Benny Hill. Benny Hill was very nudge nudge. He did very well internationally. Yeah, I think he was a bit more smutty though. The the comments about personal problems with alcohol and high court judge appointments, on the other hand, do make a very nice personal show exit. So. Please, please edit the show, presenting the edited reasons to be cheerful international. Hopefully a low-cost pruning exercise as a show for a global audience. We need the important, very substantial interviews. So he's saying we should do a global edition, a special repackaged, repurposed one for the international audience. And maybe we wouldn't talk about domestic things. We could talk about international things. We, We could just be less inside nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more in the introduction. But I mean, what are we going to talk about, though? Yeah, no, I'd be lost for words. The black hole? Well, th- then, then we would have gone in, yeah, intergalactic. I mean, one thing that struck me about Brexit is, I mean, it has gone global. I mean, John Burkow went to the Netherlands and appeared on their equivalent of Graham Norton and was apparently mobbed at the airport with people asking for selfies. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, 
I, I think I said to you in a previous episode that there was a woman in, in Washington I, I met who uh, um, who works for the Washington Post, but her children, American children, had like do impressions of John Burkow. So what you're saying is, we if we really want to go international, we need to get John Burkow on. Now there's an interesting idea. Mm. Well, look, John Turney, just to show that we read out sort of positive emails and negative emails, and we take it to heart, don't we, Jeff? No, I'm just going to ignore that completely and carry on as normal. About your guest of the day. Yes. So, should we talk about what we're talking about? Uh, yes, we should, yeah. Um, a full English. A full English, indeed. So we're talking about Englishness. As I've said before, we've kind of tiptoed into the sort of Brexit arena. Uh, we've generally been a Brexit-free zone. But there's a really sort of interesting question, I think, which is sort of emerging about... We know that devolution for Scotland and Wales has happened, but have we failed enough to talk about an English identity in a positive way? Have we left it too much to the far right to talk about that? Is it time to reclaim that question of England, English identity? Is it time to change England's institutions? I mean, if anything, the Brexit does throw up. It's the fact that our institutions don't seem fit for purpose. And we've got an all-star cast of people talking about that. We've got John Denham, a former Labour MP, who's talked a lot about these issues and thought a lot about them. Sonny Hundle, a journalist, and Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, who's doing a really good project called Dear Leavers. She's a, she's a big Remainer, big people's vote person, but she's going around the country talking to Leavers about their feelings and, and Englishness is coming up for her. So we'll be talking about that and it's a really, really interesting uh, subject and set of interviews. And pitching some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. It's an old colleague of mine when I used to do a breakfast show, she used to brew up for me. Uh, Rachel Wheely will be uh, joining us. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful is actually a bit to do with the Caroline Lucas Dear Leavers thing, which is I was on the tube yesterday and I was talking to a young um, young bloke who's a politics student. And then we suddenly talk, started talking about Brexit and we we're coming in the lift coming out of the tube. And then uh, a woman sort of said, muttered something to me about Brexit. Anyway, I then talk, started talking to these two women, one of whom was a Remainer and one of whom was a Lever, and I brought them together. You were a saint. To have a dialogue. And it was interesting that the, they both worked in the in healthcare and, you know, they had a dialogue. They had a dialogue at the, at the sort of exit to the tube station about why she'd voted Leave, why one of them voted Remain. The Lever was sort of th- thinking about whether she, to change her mind. Um... Uh, but it was, uh, you know, I felt that the, I felt we need to do a lot more of this, bringing people together across the divides. You are inching or centimetering towards that Nobel Peace Prize, Ed. Thank you very much. Maybe Baby you can give steps. me a nomination. Baby steps. Maybe you can give me a nomination. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Uh, if I said to you, paper mache head, who do you think of? I literally don't know what you're talking about. There we go. That, that's interesting. I wondered if you would. I thought, I'll give it a go. So you don't remember Frank Sidebottom then? I remember Arnie Sidebottom, who was a, a fast bowler for Yorkshire. Mm, different one. Frank Sidebottom was a man with a huge paper mache head who was a, a novelty act in the late 80s and 90s. He used to crop up. Can on... I just say, I think this is inside, inside, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. No, because I went to see at the cinema this week a documentary. John Turney, I just want to apologise to you. Yeah, well, carry on, John, John Turney would do well to, um, yeah. to, to take the story of Frank Sidebottom internationally. Sadly, the, the man who played Frank is no longer with us, but they've made a documentary about him. It's called Being Frank, the Chris Seavey story, and I went to see this that this week, and uh, it was great. So Why is it called the Chris Seavey story? Because his name was Chris Seavey, so inside Frank, Frank Sidebottom was a character, and Frank Sidebottom would... When, oh, when Chris Seavey... Put on the paper mache head. Bear with no, he's related to Little Frank, his puppet. It's a very inspiring documentary about creativity and and doing your own thing and not not catering to the whims of an audience. That's good. Okay, is that what Frank Sidebottom's about? Yes, although, like I say, Chris Seavey no longer with us, so it's it's his story. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Professor John Denham, who is Director of the Centre for English Identity and Politics at the University of Winchester. John, thank you so much for joining us. And you have had this long and storied career. You were a government minister and then you decided to put all your eggs in the Ed Miliband basket. (laughs) How, How did that go for you? Oh, that was uh, that was all right. Yes, apart from the outcome at the end of it. But, uh, 
<laughs> it was a really good experience. The operation was successful. It's just the patient who didn't do so well. The patient died, unfortunately. But uh, we were on the lo- uh, we were on the right lines for a lot of the time. But uh, we couldn't pull it off in 2015. Now, English identity and representation is something you have been talking about and writing about for a while, um, both in your current role and, and previously uh, in um, in Westminster. Can you start by telling us why you think it's important to talk about Englishness? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. The first is no one talks about England and no one talks about the English except to sort of disparage them as racists and xenophobes and proto-imperialists. Yet, actually, four out of five people who live in England say they're strongly English. The vast majority of them are very proud to be English. A lot of them think that England has interests that are distinct from the rose, those of the rest of the Union, though they may well be British too. They're never talked about. They have no voice in the conversation. So that's wrong in its own right. But the truth is, over the last 20 years, that sense of English identity has begun to find a political form, not what I would call nationalism, but you see, for example, the majority of people who voted Leave were those people who feel English and who are not represented. They are the people who are keenest on having uh, an English parliament. They're They're the people who feel most strongly that politicians don't represent them well. So you've got a large group of the electorate. They're usually not in powerful positions. They usually live outside the big cities, which tend to be more run by British-leaning people. They tend to be in smaller towns, often in places whose economy has declined over the last 20 or 30 years. So you've got a large group of people with every reason to be discontented about how things are, and they don't have a voice. And for all those reasons, we, we need to start talking about England and giving a voice to the English. And, and where do you think those feelings of not, um, not feeling like you're, you're represented come from? Because I guess if you were to, to talk to people in other parts of the union, as devolved as the administrations are there, they still feel to a large extent that England calls all the shots. Yes, but they see England as this big mass, the largest part of the union. But they're less understanding very often that the people who feel most English in England are not the people who are in power in England. If you look at the people who hold the powerful positions in politics, in much of academia, much of the media, much of corporate business, they tend to be people who say they're British rather than English. And if you're in Scotland or Wales, you don't necessarily have to draw the distinction. But actually, if you are in England, that sense of underrepresentation, that sense of powerlessness is really very palpable. And you can hear it, you can knock on doors and people will say, you're not even allowed to say you're English anymore. And thinking historically, John, how have we historically ended up in this position where sort of England and English identity is, it seems such a sort of buried subject? It's it's a legacy of empire, really. Um, British identity grew up as the, the identity of empire, and you had a British imperial government. And then as the empire fell away, you had a British government and a British unitary state. And that's how, if you like, the ruling elites conceived of things. Now, over time, of course, Wales wanted autonomy, Scotland wanted autonomy. But that old way of thinking that we had to talk about Britain and British government just stayed in the system. For example, the Labour Party, our party in Scotland, says it's rebuilding Scotland. In Wales, says it's rebuilding Wales. And in England... We say we're rebuilding Britain. And you find this over and over again. You say, well, you're not. You're talking, all your policies are for England. We're rebuilding Britain. And so even in the most radical insurrectionary Labour Party you and I have ever known, we are stuck with the language of empire. So you said earlier that uh, Englishness, uh, there is a link between people identifying as English and then voting for Brexit. It's not it's not sort of, you know, not everybody, but but it's 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 more common when people were, are expressing this view of being english do we have a sense of what it what what's underneath that what what does it sort of mean what values does it represent yeah the best way of thinking about these different national identities i think is as of a it's a way of expressing a world a world view an understanding of how the world operates so for example if you uh Englishness is associated, not with everybody, of course, but associated with um, not having been to university, living in towns that have seen relative economic decline, not um, 
being listened to, feeling strongly rooted in your particular part of England. And so for you, the last 30 or 40 years has probably won where the status of your town, the status of your community has been going down. You've had rapid demographic change through migration, which is not a you don't respond as a racist, but unsettles your sense of a long, continuous community. By contrast, the British worldview, again, you generalize massively, is very often that you are much more comfortable with the modern world. It works well with you. You're at ease with diversity and very rapid migration and big technological change. And you might well have the sort of education that means you're rather well equipped to succeed in the modern world. So I think that's the way to think about it. It's not that somebody looks at a flag and says, I'm voting for that. These views come out as a worldview. People have different explanations of whether the world is working for them or not and why not. And you can see then how that crystallises around issues like Brexit with one side saying, I like the world the way it is. And the other side saying, this world, you know, it isn't working for me. So I think it's quite wrong uh, to accept the stereotype that British identifiers have of the English. The British identifiers says, well, they're xenophobic, they're racist. That's not how the English see themselves. And it's not actually how they behave the vast majority of time. Of course, there's racism, but there's racism in all groups across society. What's the value of patriotism? Well, to me, it is part of the key to a progressive politics that... Uh, if you're going to build a better society, you have to know who we are. Uh, The Labour Party, for example, says we're for the many, not the few. Well, who is the many? Is it just a sort of statistical number of people? Or is it a sense of people who are determined, who share a lot in common, who want to build a better society together? In its best forms, patriotism and national identity is a way of expressing that common sense of identity and gives you the impetus to build a better society and that's the real value of it now john talk to us about the um contrast between progressives feeling like being a scottish or a welsh nationalist you know it might not be something they're that keen on but it's sort of not kind of forbidden taboo territory whereas Englishness has tended a bit more to be forbidden territory. Would you say that's fair? And, and what do you think the reasons are? I, I think that's the same among, that's certainly true amongst the sort of progressive liberal strand of the population. And the truth is that in Scotland, certainly, and to, to a large extent in Wales, they have had the opportunity through the process of campaigning for independence or campaigning for devolution to have a discussion about what sort of nation they're going to be in the 21st century. The debate hasn't finished yet, but they've had that debate. And obviously, one of the things that happened in Scotland as people started pushing for more autonomy was they had to say, well, who's Scottish? What does it mean to be Scottish? And they they came to the only conclusion they could that Scotland had to belong to all the people who are living there. And so if you go to and that's now reinforced by the Scottish government, which is active, along with the political leadership in promoting the idea of a diverse, inclusive Scotland. Uh, By contrast, where would that debate take place in England? There's no national forum. There's no national parliament. Most of the people who are more powerful in England don't even identify as English. So Englishness has been left as an identity, as it were, to look after itself without engagement from the political parties, from the media or for government. Most people in England actually take the Gareth Southgate view of a modern, diverse English identity. But there is a minority, undoubtedly, who see it as a white identity. And it's something that I've seen like that amongst ethnic minorities, too. But... This has happened without any national forum, without any debate, without any attempt to craft an inclusive English identity. And that's what we need to be doing. We don't need just to take it as it is. We need to shape it for the future. So what, what form does that debate take then? What are the ideas about having these conversations? Well, you know, national identities, national stories are things that people share that unite them together. It's a mixture of symbols and histories and values. And the same is true of Englishness. So at the one level, you do need a debate nationally about what we share together, what it would mean to have an England that works for the common good. But you also have to have institutions to shape that. So you need some sort of parliament or assembly where people elected from England can make the laws that apply to England. I mean, it's a fair 
any basic democratic idea, but we don't have that at the moment. And you need institutions that can devolve power to the localities of England, uh, because England is run by the UK government and it's run by the UK government from London and voices, particularly outside London, are silenced at the moment. So we need both institutions and a process of a national debate to talk about what sort of England we want in the future. And does that mean for you, John, an English parliament? And and what would that actually mean, an English parliament? Well, I think the obvious thing is that uh, English people should be able to elect representatives who make laws that only apply to England. I mean, you will remember, Ed, when we were in government, the Labour government wanted to impose higher tuition fees on students in England. Lots of English Labour MPs didn't want to do that. So the Labour government used Scottish and Welsh MPs to push through those fee increases for England, even though they wouldn't apply to Welsh and Scottish students. I can't defend that democratically. It seems to be wrong. So all of those things that are devolved to Scotland or devolved to Wales should be the responsibility of people elected from England. And that has changed, hasn't it? Because the Conservative government introduced this system in the House of Commons where you have legislation that is England only and it's only the votes of English MPs that count is that that's right isn't it well really at the end of the day there's a sort of veto process for English MPs but it's never provided a forum for national debate about England almost nobody knows about it it's not a living thing I think you have to have a parliament that's a focus for national debate where laws begin and end with the people elected from England as they do in Scotland as they do in Wales Um, there's different ways of doing it and, and I think we should have an open mind. Some people would like to see what's called a dual mandate Westminster, where your English MPs sit separately for part of the year to do English legislation. Some people would like to see a freestanding parliament. I think that's got to be open for debate rather than something that has to be settled from the centre. And it, clearly this for you is not just about things like a national institution. What are the other things that that sort of could make a difference here? I think there is also a need for a sort of cultural debate about what sort of England we want to be at the moment. I mean, the worst possible scenario for the future is that we end up with an even wider polarisation between a Britishness, which is young, university-educated, in the cities, shared by powerful people, and also becomes the only identity of most people from ethnic minority backgrounds. And then an Englishness, which is not the cities, not the people who've been to universities, not people from ethnic minorities, a polarisation of identities. And that would be a very worrying future. So I think we actually need to have a conscious debate. What does it mean to be English in the 21st century? What are the stories we're going to share for the future? These are not, for example, to give you one example, given our makeup now, we can't have a national story that is just about empire from the point of view of the former imperial power. It has to be a story too about people who lived under empire, whose families are now living here. We don't have that discussion. It's not explored in in most of our literature, not in terms of finding common ground. And that's what we need to do. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is uh, it sees me installed as a supreme but benign leader who is very hands off. Uh, if if I was to make you first minister of England with Ed as your PPS, um, <laughs> what what would be, I'd be honoured? I'd be honoured. What what would be the first thing you would do on day one or in in this you know on this subject? The first thing I would do is I'd say, whenever we're talking just about England we are going to say England. So if we're talking about the NHS in England, we'll talk about the NHS in England. If we talk about universities, we'll talk about universities in England. And then the second thing I'd do is I would set up a citizens' constitutional assembly of the sort they've used in Ireland. Because rather than me saying, I'm going to set up an English parliament or I'm going to do devolution, I'd say, let's get representative groups of our fellow citizens together and say, if we're going to make this a fairer, more inclusive nation, where should power lie? Should there be an English parliament? Where should it be? Where should power lie in the localities? And actually enable the people of England... British identifiers as well as English identifiers to shape the institutions they want for the future. And the third thing he'd do is fire me as his PPS. (laughs) I'd have far too much respect. Oh, thank you. John Denham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
To get a different perspective, we're joined now by Sunny Hundle, who's a journalist and commentator at Open Democracy. Sunny, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. So you've written about this issue of Englishness and Britishness, and, and you've said you've sort of changed your mind about it. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of the way you identify, talk to us a little bit about that and why that came about. Well, about 10 years ago, I, as the debate around Englishness became a lot more louder, I thought, you know, this is something that I think we, and I say that as a minority, um, we should grapple with. And I think that, you know, I find patriotism important. I do think that it's important to have a sense of a national identity, a national uh, sort of project. And, you know, just being uh, having something in common with people that you live in the country with. And so I thought, well, let's try and think about this idea of Englishness and instead of Britishness, which I was more used to. And then I thought, well, actually, you know, there's nothing stopping me from calling myself English. I, if I want, really want to think about it, I don't really live in Scotland, Ireland, Wales. I have, I don't really know much about their culture, but I do know about English culture. England is my home. So this is a, a debate that I've been trying to push forward for quite a long time. Think about how we can get more minorities and the left generally to think about uh, being English rather than just British. And obviously there is a particular barrier, particularly for ethnic minority communities, which is the association in some people's minds of Englishness with the far right seeking to own Englishness. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, you know, this is not a recent thing in the sense that 20 years ago when I was at university, we used to have the same debates around Britishness. And, you know, people used to say, well, why would I want to call myself British? It's, you know, it's by the BNP, you know. So the fact is that firstly, the definitions and the associations change over time. And even at that time, I used to say, well, regardless of the BNP, we are British, whether they like it or not, whether the BNP like it or not, you know, we are part Part of this country and we slowly developed a culture a hybrid culture of you know a British Asian identity uh, whether it came to music or food or you know just cultural life people came to accept that actually you can have a a British and an Asian hybrid identity and I think we can do the same thing with Englishness it's been done in the past we can do it again I guess the thing for me about this debate and I we talked about this a bit with John is how do you give this because i'm incredibly sympathetic to the uh, to the idea that we shouldn't leave the field to the far right yeah how do you give this practical expression do you think in other words you know how does this sort of kind of come alive as a as a as a thing rather than just as something that we talk about on podcasts or you know you you write about yeah i mean to me a uh, sports has become possibly the, the 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 best example of this you know just a few months ago when the England, the World Cup was going on. There was this really strong sense of sort of national pride, uh, you know, sort of national. Everyone of all colours, backgrounds were coming together and you know, sort of cheering on the English team. And I felt that was a good example of how people can be brought together around uh, a, a project. And I think you know, the the danger is that this only happens around. Uh, you know, sports teams, you know, um, and which are also male dominated. And we, we sort of have to try and think about how can we make this a more inclusive project, a more cultural project rather than just being about sport. But I think sport is a fantastic entry point into this debate because it does bring people together. The English team that played in the World Cup were the most diverse ever. And there was never this sense of, you know, um, that these people are not part of this country. And I think those sort of sentiments slowly bring people around and accept, get them to accept that this identity can be changed. I mean, just to give you a brief example, 20 years ago when these debates were happening, it was the sight of people like Linford Christie and uh, Amir Khan, you know, waving around the Union Jack and saying, I am British, I'm representing. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, and that is what brought people to, to, to this idea that actually why can't black or Asian people uh, also wear the Union Jack. And now I think the same thing can be done with, with the England flag. What do you think about ideas of making more of St George's Day and perhaps making that a bank, holiday. a bank holiday? So Jeremy Corbyn proposed UK-wide public holidays on St David's Day, St Patrick's Day, St George's Day and St Andrew's Day. I mean, that's one possibility, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think it's a good start. Come on, I mean, more holidays, son. More, more holidays. <laughs> yeah, no, no, def- definitely in favor of more holidays. But I do think that, you know, it's not enough because uh, people will just treat it as, as a holiday. They'll stay at home, they'll do their own thing. And we need something which brings the country together. You know, if we don't uh, capture the flag for ourselves, we are letting the English identity be defined uh, by the far right. And so that's why I really want to see more um, black and Asian people, Chinese people in this country, born bred, carrying the St. George's flag. But, you know, that requires something more than just a national holiday. It requires some sort of a cultural event. Last question, Sonny. We have this thing on the podcast called the... uh... Jeffocracy, which may be a frightening thought, but but it's probably less less frightening than some of the other things that are happening at the moment. Uh, it's the it, sunlit uplands of the Jeffocracy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, do you, do you know enough of the sort of <laughs> bragging? Uh, if Jeff was to make you Minister for England, First Minister of England, what what's what's the what's the what's the things you would do? What's the first thing you would do? Uh, probably fly the England flag a lot more. Um, I would try and find. Um, sort of black and Asian people to talk more about uh, national identity, um, which I don't think they're afraid of, really. I mean, Asian people love talking about national identity, but the only identity uh, they're comfortable with is talking about, you know, the the national identity they left back home, you know, the India and Pakistan. But we need to find something of a more inclusive national project to have a debate again about what does it mean to be Englishness? what, what, What does England stand for? How can it be more progressive? You know, what sort of values do we want it to encompass? Okay, Sonny Handel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Let's get another perspective on England and Englishness now. I've dumped Jeff. I'm I'm back in Parliament voting on Brexit. And I've got with me Caroline Lucas, the Green MP for Brighton Pavilion, a prominent campaigner for another referendum on Brexit, and somebody who's doing a tour that she's calling the Dear Leavers Tour, talking to Leave voters about why they voted for Brexit in the referendum. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So you're doing this really interesting project, which everybody should go and look up on the web. Uh, (laughs) There is, I I can do the shameless plug and then you can do it as well, Um, called Dear Leavers. Tell us about Dear Leavers and then we'll talk a bit about Englishness. So Dear Leavers is a project to try to have some conversations with people who voted Leave around the country to really get underneath the sort of the rhetoric and all of the kind of fighting that you see in the media to really understand what it was that drove people to vote Leave. And, And it's not necessarily even starting by asking them that question. It's actually much more about, you know, what are their big concerns about where they're from. What does the world look like from where they sit in Dudley or Huddersfield or Swindon? Or Dudley, which is actually where your great-grandfather was... Mother. Great, my great-grandmother ran a pub in Dudley, and so I was delighted to, to yeah. go back there. It really felt... Yeah, um, yeah it felt quite important yeah. to to really understand as well that you know people, for example, in Dudley feel enormously proud. And the number of people I spoke to said, yeah, I wouldn't live anywhere else. But they also said that they felt a million miles away from London. They felt that, you know, they didn't have any real say over so many of the decisions that affect them. And I think that that sense of powerlessness and voicelessness, in a sense, is something that came up again and again wherever I was around the country. And as part of this, as people will see if they go and see the videos, shameless plug number two, (laughs) you. uh, um, you also talk about Englishness, which is our which is the subject we're talking about Tell us sort of what has come through to you about Englishness in the in these in this journey. I, I guess what interested me was the extent to which the Brexit vote was driven by England outside of London and, and obviously outside some of the bigger metropolitan cities. But for vast areas of of England, that the, the towns in particular, if you look at the regions of of, of England, they overwhelmingly voted to leave by about 11%. And it's quite interesting as well to sort of look at some of the demographics that people have looked at to say that the same demographic in both Scotland and England meant that the ones with the same demographic in Scotland voted to remain, but in England voted to leave. And I was just interested in trying to understand, is there something there about the lack of um, partly... English institutions in order to be able to give an expression to an English identity that people felt comfortable with, but also about how we feel about Englishness. Because 
It's easy to feel proud of England when you're talking about Shakespeare or Wordsworth or the countryside. You know, those are, those are all lovely English things. But as soon as Englishness gets translated into a political um, context, then it becomes a bit more suspicious. It becomes, you know, is that racist? Is it, is it somehow nationalistic in a, in, a, in a negative way? I just think it's incredibly dangerous if we don't identify some kind of progressive patriotism because if we don't then we cede a huge amount of ground to the right and has this these conversations sort of changed your mind about this issue i mean in other words you know is it thinking about the referendum and why people voted to leave that has sort of driven you to this english to think thinking about englishness whereas in a maybe in a way you wouldn't have done yeah no definitely i mean i i really feel that that the whole kind of brexit crisis has lifted the lid on the rottenness of some of our of our governance structures that have been there all along but which have been kind of brushed under the carpet and and not really addressed for many many years and you know, obviously, we had a, a, a constitutional set of changes that, that Tony Blair started. We'll credit him for that. But he didn't finish it. And so we've got the Scottish Parliament and we've got a Welsh Assembly. But when you come to England, there's, there's, there's nowhere that I think that people feel a, a confidence and a sense of identity and a sense of, of agency. That sense that they don't feel in control of decisions affecting their lives. Now, obviously, that's, I would argue, a lot more to do with governance in the UK than it is in the EU. But it's interesting that, in a sense, it felt that they were kind of responding to and using the opportunity of the whole kind of EU debate to say something about about how we're governed in this country. And do you think, I'm just thinking about my own constituency experience, I mean, I suppose I, I sort of think of Englishness as sort of bubbling sort of under the surface rather than necessarily being front of mind? Or would you say it was front of mind in your conversation? I mean... Clearly, the Leave vote, you know, England voted to leave. But I suppose people don't necessarily raise Englishness. They certainly don't raise the institutions. No, no, I think you're you're right. Um, It's not the first thing that comes up in the conversation. It's often regional identity or local identity that comes up. It is. And and also that sense of, of where is there any kind of place where they have influence locally and regionally too. And we are one of the most centralised countries in Europe, really, with with so much being focused on Westminster and with local councils having so few powers. And we've kind of got rid of, you know, the sense of of regional government in most places as well. And is it for you mainly about institutions, English institutions, or is it about um, symbols? Or you can say say both. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the institutions are crucial because people feel I in, in my experience anyway generally that that they don't have enough control over aspects of their lives so part of that is an institutional answer um and we can argue what that looks like I'm not necessarily saying an English parliament it could be devolving power to, to regions in, in 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 other ways um but that's only only that that's only really matters if it, if it allows this expression of 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 identity and and values as well in some sense i think i mean i i I don't think that you can completely divorce the two two. no exactly so last question i want to ask you which um is my co-host who's not here sadly would not forgive me if i didn't ask you is he's got something called we have something on the podcast called the jeffocracy which is the idea of jeff who's my co-host as the sort of benign uh as he said claims benign ruler uh, now, if he was to make you minister for England uh, in his benign rulership, um, what's the first thing that you would you would want to do? Well, actually, the first thing that I would want to do, um, which absolutely speaks to taking back control, would be to change our electoral system. And I appreciate that's bigger than just England, but it feels to me that when you've got a first-past-the-post system that systematically leaves out the voices and the views of anybody who doesn't live in a marginal seat, then you're storing up huge problems for the future. And I just think we would open up so many doors to so many more progressive ideas if we could just ensure that people's voices and their votes mattered, not just in a one-off referendum, but in every election that we have in this country. Okay, well, look, I shall pass it on to Jeff. Uh, I'm sure you'll get the job. (laughs) Uh, Caroline Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. So what do you think then? Well, it's changed my mind a little bit because I, 
I've always felt, I don't know, the the idea of Englishness. It feels like the old John Major thing about warm beer and village yeah. greens and the thack, thwack of a yeah. cricket ball, and that's never really meant anything to me. But I thought it was interesting talking to, to John, especially about the not way... John Major. Not John Major, but uh, John yeah. Denham, especially about the ways in Scotland and Wales having these conversations has actually led to a... a sort of a binding set of fairly progressive principles and because we haven't had these conversations in england it's almost left a vacuum for the uh, and the or a space for the far right to occupy so you know maybe having had these chats on this week's podcast i think it's more important than i originally did yeah i I thought the two things that struck me were one sunny's point about you know you might think, is this a bit like you? I think, is this debate really going to go anywhere? And then you think, well, actually, people's kind of reappropriation of the Brit- of the Union Jack has made a difference. So people have less, dis- you know, people at one point people were discomforted by the way, you know, flat Union Jack. Yeah, waving. it was a far right symbol yeah. in the sort of yeah. 70s and, and that 80s. has changed. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, I thought his idea about deliberative assembly, because, you know, we're, we're great sort of sorticianites, you and I. Yeah, always have uh, For thinking about how you handle this Englishness thing, because the English laws for English parliament or the English votes for English laws thing has sort of kind of come in, but it's very under the radar and it's not clear what it means and it hasn't sort of made the governance of England better. And the other thing is the devolution thing. I think one shouldn't ignore the fact that, you know, devolution to Scotland and Wales was about bringing power closer to people. We're still working on doing the same thing in England. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you've got thoughts about Englishness, about what you've heard, these questions of identity, really interesting questions, please email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast, also on Instagram or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. This one comes from Nilesh Pinto. Dear Jeff and Ed, I'm a journalist from India who's been listening to the podcast ever since the UBI episode. That's episode number one. I've been applying for a master's degree in Europe for the past few years, but was unsuccessful in each attempt. This year, not only have I been accepted to seven programs, but I've also received a full scholarship to study political science and policy at the Central European University in Budapest. I'm grateful to the Reasons team because a weekly dose of the podcast has exposed me to new ideas and opinions, helped me put down my thoughts more clearly and discover where my interests lie. It's also helped me fend off the Monday blues. I know I couldn't have got the scholarship without you guys, and I owe you a big thanks. All hail the Jeffocracy. And his title of the email is Your Podcast Helped Me Get a Scholarship. Jeff, I think That's you... fantastic. Oh, that is fantastic, isn't it? You deserve yeah, big congratulations. credit. You deserve big credit for that. Me, me, me especially. Well, and me, but I mean, I was hoping you were going to say, and you do too. That's normally what one would say. 
I mean, I think Nilesh probably deserves most of the credit. Yeah, well, I'm not saying we deserve more credit than Nilesh. I mean, I'm just saying we deserve credit. (laughs) All right, this one comes from Russell Roberts, who says several things. Uh, Number one, the podcast is great and does restore a bit of hope for the future. Number two, Ed needs to stop going, oh, every time he says something funny. Eh? I've I've not noticed you do this. Oh? Oh, yeah, yeah, that is quite familiar now that you... You do it. I, I'm worried that um, that Russell's going to make you self-conscious because, you know, you're just enjoying yourself. You're having a laugh. You're being free. You're, you're not being buttoned up or constrained by, uh. you know. <laughs> uh. I'd quite like if there any anybody, anyone who's musically competent listening, uh. if you could sample Ed and maybe put that onto a dance record, I think it could be a uh. big hit. And lastly, we've got this from Chris King. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I love the podcast. I want to suggest an episode on cycling. Leaving aside the, leaving aside the rows that often come up between those who cycle and those who don't, cycling is a potential solution to many of our most pressing problems, health congestion, lack of exercise, air pollution, climate change, and so on. Some good work has been done in improving infrastructure. We can do so much more to get more people on their bikes and out of their cars. It's a sport for everyone, and you can cycle as slow as fast as you want. And there are lots of charities that try to reach out to people who may not be able to afford bikes and get potentially marginalised groups cycling. Many thanks, Chris. I think we have got it in mind for a future episode. We've got the Tour de Yorkshire coming to Doncaster at the beginning of May. Um, and so um, watch the space. Uh, and, me, and me and you on a bicycle made for two. Do you think that's going to work? I think we might fall off. Me and you? Surely not. Mm. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. And this week's comedian is Rachel Wheely. Hello. Hello. Now, this is an exciting one because often on the podcast, we've had people who've previously worked with you and I've been as- able to ask them yeah. questions about what you were like to yeah. work with. Rach, many years ago, used to, um, I mean, what was your job title? Runner. Runner, but I mean, what did on it what? on my old breakfast show on Virgin Radio? Wow, yeah, that's why I used to make tea and toast. For how, Jeff. Much, how much of a nightmare was he? He was just, I mean, but he, he, was, throw he was obviously a nightmare, but my my sort of like ag- agility improved a lot, yeah. dodging <laughs> slices of toast. No, you see, so I was in a double act, it was me and a guy called Pete, and I used to really good cop it, bad cop it, didn't I? I mean, he, yeah. he, he was very much the bad cop, and I was the good cop. I used to have the toast sent back. What was it? What was it by Jeff? By by well, normally Pete actually would send the toast back. I'd have to redo it. It had to be a very particular. It had to be exactly the right shade of brown. Yeah. I think you considered getting in one of the Dulux charts. Yeah, I did. What I was did. Jeff's most annoying characteristic? Um, he ate too much of the curry that we used to get delivered. That was well, that's pretty. It. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. innocent. We used to. That, that was a regular feature on our morning. breakfast show. We used to, you know, when it was sort of nas- national curry week or any excuse really. What like seven or, or a Tuesday? Yeah, half a six or a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If everyone was feeling a bit down, we'd, we'd get a curry. You know what, I mean, I must say, as annoying characteristics go for radio presenters, eating too much curry <laughs> is kind of quite seems pretty innocent. It's because I'm too needy for people's approval. Is that right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just sort of. I'm nice most of the time. I hadn't noticed I actually that. <laughs> it was in fact the best job in the world. Oh, it was yeah. fun, wasn't it? It was really good. And and Rach used to be called Rachel Puddyfoot, and I thought you can't get a better name than Rachel Puddyfoot. But then you got married, and you're Rachel Wheelie, and you've you've sort of gone one up. I completely refused to double barrel it. Puddyfoot Wheelie I mean, Puddyfoot is good. I mean that that sounds like a contraption of some sort. Puddyfoot uh, Wheelie actually. It's yeah. like, that sounds like it's something you would do on a contraption. <laughs> What, like I'm a, doing a putty fat wheelie? Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh. I've put my back out doing putty foot wheelies. Yeah, putty foot, sorry, putty foot wheelies, yeah. Uh, so you brought along some ideas, Rach. What's, what's your first one? Uh, my first one is drone sheepdogs for children. Go on. Now, the farmers of the UK have started investing in drones to uh, herd sheep around. And apparently what's happened is that they, they did work initially because the sheep were like, what the hell is that? And ran in the appropriate direction. But now they just sort of look at them. So it's not really working. But I reckon if I could have something which would basically be like an Amazon Echo with wings that could sort of like herd my children to school, and if it could pipe out Shotgun by George Ezra, they would just (laughs) sort of, it could just pipe pipe my children to school because they would follow it because it was playing their favourite song. And then I could stay in bed. Is that their favourite song? It's their favourite song. It's their favourite song as well. There are actions to it that they know. How old are they? 
Uh, they are four and six and nine. Amazing. What are the actions just so that Ed can do them yeah. in his car the next time he's listening to um, it? Uh, well, there's a bit in it about a mountain, isn't there? So they, they do mountain. They, I'll be riding shotgun underneath Doing the, the gun hot sun. I mean, it doesn't really work yeah. on a podcast, but you can see that. Wow. I'm doing yeah. There you go. That alive and car journey's up for you, aren't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Gosh. So, yeah, I think that's quite a good idea, actually. Being able to shepherd your sheep, uh, well, your, but, sh- shepherd your children around. But also, you could, like, sit at home watching them be... I could walking, pilot it. I'll pilot it. Walking to school. But you'd also be able to see that they were going yeah. in the right direction, that they yeah. weren't sort of being, you know, nothing bad was happening, and they were well, crossing then, the road. And then you could sort of say, right, wait, because there's a car coming. Yeah, and that could come out of the Amazon yes. Echo in my voice. Yeah. But also yeah. it would allow a load of parents to return to the workforce, you see, because then they wouldn't they, they could do a nine to five if they didn't Although that's not how you're picturing yourself run. going back to No, the... I'm thinking of like having a duvet day. <laughs> all right, what's okay. your next idea, Rach? Uh, all men to experience life as women between the ages of sixteen and nineteen. Aha. Uh-huh. Why specifically sixteen and nineteen? Um Basically, because I think that's like a that's a crucial formative period in somebody's life where if they can understand like having to deal with having to take responsibility for contraception suddenly bleeding when you're not expecting to uh, the cat calling the gender pay gap we might suddenly find that all these men continue on into life and we get free sanitary wear in schools and all kinds of things will happen because policies will be put in place by these men who can remember their i'm going to call it national cervix and uh, <laughs> And they and they sort of take all these ideas forward and think we need to do something about these five things that I experienced at that important age in my life. How were teenage boys in your experience? Because you 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 grew up in a like, I know this from real life. You grew up in a slightly odd environment where your dad worked in an all boys school, mm. so presumably you must have been around boys who who rarely came into contact with teenage girls. Yeah, I did. So I grew up at Eton College, the poshest school in the world, right? Bloody Same hell. school year as Prince William, but I was not allowed to attend the school. So I was just growing up in, in the town. In col- yeah, because my dad taught there. Bloody hell. So I basically, it was me and a thousand... You didn't teach David Cameron, did he? Um, don't think so. Right. No, don't think so. He'd have think- a lot to answer for if he had, uh, <laughs> uh, just at the moment. Um, yeah, so so I grew up with a thousand sort of like adolescent aristocrats, basically. That was my God. that was my peer group. It was very weird. God, it's sort of like being in the House of Commons. Uh, <laughs> um, it was. Probably. Uh, wow. This is perhaps why it's sort of a, a key idea in my head that they need to um, because they were also they were in school uniforms. So they were in their three piece suits, yeah, those, like pinstripes, those and everything. Those things are ridiculous. I'm afraid. So they were very much in a pack of like mutually mm. supporting felons. And, um, <laughs> and all right, we'll have, we'll have that then. What's your next one? Great. Okay, um, Uber style friend service. So you know how you can use your phone and get a car, a vehicle to come to you, and you can also use your phone and get food delivered to you. Why not just use your phone and get a person delivered to you who would be your friend, right? So say you've been stood up for a date, for Mm. example, but you want to have that time talking about your day and feeling loved and you you just dial in someone who will come over and be your friend and then obviously they're going to have to listen to how your day went and be nice to you because otherwise their rating will go down. Right. I mean, People then hire themselves out. Yeah. As, as friends, so the gig economy, you know, just but as a friend, yeah. I, I'm, I think I Uber would be Pete. slightly more picky about my Uber friend than I would about my Uber driver. I think. Would you? Would you? I mean, you'd, you'd just be happy for anybody no, to do, turn up. I don't up. think you get a choice in which one. I think it's just the nearest. Oh no. Yeah, and they would. I thought you would be into and... this idea because you get to talk to a stranger. You love nothing better than talking to a stranger. I'm not sure I want this little stranger delivered to me. <laughs> also, the reason I came up with this is because as a fledgling comedian, you have to go to lots of gigs, which yeah. are called bringer gigs. So you have to bring somebody with you to form part of the audience. That's like the oh, right. that's the deal for getting mm, your five yeah. minutes on stage. So I could just because I've run out of friends now. Like you know, my friends just won't come anymore. That is a good idea. <laughs> have you got a high Uber rating? Jeff? Well, well, my my Uber rating was slipping, and then I figured out how to get it back up again. What's that? I say to the Uber driver at the end of each journey, oh, I'll make sure I add a tip. 
and then then mysteriously they all start rating you you five stars. But I should be five stars anyway because I'm such a conscientious passenger. I'm never late. I never slam the door. I never ask to change the radio channel. I never open the the window. No, no. I mean, I I, I am an exemplary passenger. Do you eat in the car now? No, no. And and I took it, and I'm friendly, and I took it quite personally when I noticed my rating had dropped to 4.40 because I felt like I had a metric that was judging my actual personality because if I'm doing everything right and I'm I'm still getting low marks. That essentially says that I'm an unlikable person. I've got person. a very good, much simpler solution. What have you got next, Rach? Bring back duelling. <laughs> duelling? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't want anyone to die, mm. right? So we could do it with Nerf guns or chess or water pistols or whatever. But I just, I, I like the idea of having um, an arbitrated <laughs> way of getting through an argument so that there is an actual decision. So you Brexit, don't think that's not a solution to Brexit? <laughs> if you like. Sort of. Why not? So you have like a, a sort of, you take the 650 MPs. Paintballing. No, you take the 650 MPs. You'd, you'd start with the round of... 512. Well, you have to somehow start with the round of 512. And it would be like I, then I, elimination. No, and then I the person just, who won got to decide. I think you should pitch it to Channel 4. Just, just Teresa versus Juncker. <laughs> just 6am, <laughs> Nerf guns. Let's get it done. Although, what if sort of you know Jacob Rees Mogg turned out to be very good at dueling because of some aristocratic lineage? <laughs> I mean, they teach that at Eton, you know. And then so. they, did he go to Eton? <laughs> yeah. And then they might then you might end up sort of with him deciding. Mm. So that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? So I mean, would it have to be gun related? Could it be fencing, for could example? Be. Could you have a dance off? You could have anything, anything, as long as it's agreed beforehand, and as long as there's an independent adjudicator, then the format doesn't matter. But the point is, it has to be really early in the morning. And then when it's done, you have it's almost like one of those legal things where it's like once you've been convicted of murder, people can call you a murderer. That's actually legally fine. Once this uh, duel has happened, there has been a decision. There's made no on appeals the process. No appeals process. It's just, well, it was proved by the duel that you were wrong and you did leave the milk out all morning. <laughs> all right, bring him back, dueling, Ed. Where'd you stand on it? Mm, yeah. Okay. Rach, if people want to come and see you, uh, what, what are you up to at the minute? Well, I've got two very exciting shows happening in April, uh, which are happening at the Bill Murray, which is the gorgeous angel comedy venue in Islington. One is called The Unfortunate Bisexual, which is a stand-up show with myself and the very hilarious Karis Bradley about bisexuality and how nobody really understands it. And we're not even sure we understand it either. And then uh, that's on April the 3rd. And then on the 14th, we've got the big old bisexual cabaret. The big the old bisexual, venue. big old. Big old. Well, oh, right. It's O-L apostrophe. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. Big old bisexual cabaret, which is uh, six or seven acts all doing their thing, which will be like a big, crazy, big, crazy party. Extravaganza. So come down for that. Rach, Rachel Wheelie, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, it's time for us to go now, and I've got good news for John Tierney, because Jeff's going global. I am. I'm, I'm going global imminently. I am off to see my mother-in-law. So, so I mean, this is a bit of a funny one. I'm going to Chicago for the weekend, which seems a bit excessive, but my son is having a birthday, and I don't want to miss it. Um, I mean, to be honest, he's too young to remember. It's going to be his third birthday. However, in recent months, I've been very much the favourite yeah. favorite parent out of him. Uh, you want to keep it up. My wife. Yeah, and I'm, I'm worried that her spending all this time, you know, on holiday with him is going to nudge me into second position. So I need to go over there and reclaim the reclaim the crown. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't see it in such a competitive way, perhaps. You wouldn't see it in a competitive way. I don't think competing you're, you're with the one's wife over the affection of one's met. child is quite... I mean, that's taking it to new levels, even that sort of UK all-comers record. Right. And then you'll be back, and then you're going to be back and doing... Five Live. Uh, yes, the late show on Five Live. Ten till one. Week. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes it starts at half past ten. Sometimes it starts at ten, depending on what else. Is well, going I'll on be sure to be listening. One. Well, you'll be on recess, so you'll have plenty of time to tune in. I'll be sure to be listening a bit. <laughs> uh, let's thank our guests, John Denham, Sonny Hundle, and Caroline Lucas, and the wonderful Rachel Wheely, who is 
very funny. You should go and see her live. Emma Caution produces our podcast. This week, standing in for Emma is Samantha Bruff, because Emma is off globetrotting herself. Joel Pierce is our researcher with backup from Joe Kenyon. James Deacon made the eye dance, had seed, composed the music, and the artwork was designed by... Emily Powell. So that's that. This is reason to be cheerful going global. Justin Salford, I'm in London. Yeah, yeah. This is this is how it starts. John, John Tierney, we we we've taken what you said to heart. So he's been nudge nudge. He's been wink wink. And these have been reasons to be global. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.